For us to maintain our way of living, we must tell lies to each other and especially to ourselves. Welcome to NVC Life. I'm Rochelle Lamb, veteran NVC trainer and relationship coach, helping listeners navigate interpersonal conflict and ground more deeply into relational living. Greetings, fellow humans. In today's episode, I explore the notion of living in a world where everyone's needs matter and are met through natural compassionate giving, which is most often the vision and purpose ascribed to the nonviolent communication process. I'll begin by saying that I think this is a wonderful idea that suggests an ideal outcome if enough people are committed to it. And now I'm going to say something that could be disappointing. I don't believe it's possible. I don't believe it's possible for 8 billion people to live on this planet where each and every human being believes that their needs matter and that they will or can be met. I say this not because it's not a humane and caring way to think, because it is, or because it's not a worthy pursuit, because it is. I say it because the attainment of such a vision would require adjustments so significant and so profound that I simply can't imagine people willingly making such adjustments without enormous resistance, if not outright refusal. And so in this episode, I'd like to rethink the purpose of nonviolent communication, not in order to devalue its role in relationships and social change efforts, but quite the opposite, to enhance it. And just in case listeners might not be convinced that NVC isn't the panacea that some might believe, I'll simply say that even in the microcosm of a married couple, it can be extraordinarily difficult for both people to embrace the idea that their respective needs can be fulfilled within the relationship. Expand the couple to include the family, even more difficult. Expand it to a neighborhood, to a city, to a country, to a continent, to the world. The challenges and complexities grow exponentially as the circle of needs and strategies to meet those needs widens. Unless you can somehow manage to get everyone on the same page about what constitutes needs and having those needs met, the idea that we can live in a world where everyone's needs matter and are met through natural compassionate giving is implausible. So you won't hear me talking about everyone's needs being met. Because people understand their needs differently, even after spending years studying NVC, people can find themselves to be deeply at odds with others who have studied NVC for just as long. For instance, NVC practitioners agree in theory that the needs for respect and consideration are universal, that the needs to be seen, heard, and understood are universal. Here's the challenge, though. While these may very well be needs, the satisfaction of these needs is highly subjective. To use an exaggerated example, if you own a 60-foot luxury yacht priced at $28 million, let's imagine that your needs for enjoyment of life and sense of personal well-being are abundantly met by owning the yacht. 
and let's imagine somewhere else in the world, one or more members of an uncontacted tribe whose needs for enjoyment of life and sense of well-being are met much more simply, perhaps by having harvested wild honey from a beehive in the forest's canopy, or by being huddled around a fire and hearing the stories of the most esteemed tribe elders. Same needs for enjoyment of life and sense of personal well-being. But the tribe members haven't become dependent on costly and destructive resource extraction to be satisfied. To quote environmental activist Derek Jensen, for us to maintain our way of living, we must tell lies to each other and especially to ourselves. The lies are necessary because without them, many deplorable acts would become impossibilities. I think it's very hard for most people in our modern world to disentangle their needs from their lifestyle choices. And in a free world, we should be able to choose our lifestyles, right? There's a saying that most people are familiar with, your liberty to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. The thing is, in a world where we don't see the direct link between lifestyle and harm to the world, and where it's neither in the best interest for the consumer supply chain relationship to be deeply examined and challenged, given that it will significantly mess with the consumer status quo, I can't imagine the luxury yacht owner sitting down with the tribe elders to discuss living in a world where everyone's needs can be met. It's an unequal and distorted relationship. The tribe is already living in a manner that is congruent with the environment. The yacht owner, however, has so profoundly diverged from living congruently with the living environment and has lived inside a separate bubble for so long I simply can't see that they would want to contend with the magnitude of unpleasant feelings that would surely arise from reviewing their choices in a relational light. I recently heard a question being asked in an online summit. I thought it was an excellent question. How do we know what we need? Five years ago, I wrote a piece titled A Balanced Understanding of Needs. In it, I wrote, if your narrative of the world and what constitutes a good life is peddled to you through a human-centric lens, you will almost inevitably view and understand needs through that same lens. You will devise strategies to meet your needs and the needs of those you care for while paying little heed to the needs of the non-human life upon which your human life is inarguably 100% dependent. The landscape falling off the edge of your lens will barely be visible to you. This, of course, doesn't mean that the landscape isn't there, even if you don't see it. I've included a link in the show notes if you'd like to read the rest of that article. In keeping with the theme of serving the needs of life, here's an excerpt from the CNBC Network News of June 2000, so that's 24 years ago, and these are Marshall Rosenberg's words. In the last year, I have become increasingly concerned about how much we have been focusing upon intrapersonal and interpersonal conflict and how little we have been focusing on organizational and social change. As Russell Jacobi has written, 
Nothing maintains the current arrangement of power more effectively than an approach that ignores the current arrangement of power and that focuses attention instead on how you feel about yourself. Marshall added that he wished to build into the NBC curriculum stronger ways of making people aware of how the training can be used to transform domination systems into life-serving systems. In a 2004 interview with Alternatives magazine, editor Peter Moore asked Marshall this question. You say that society has institutionalized violence to deal with human problems for about 8,000 years now. What makes you certain that violence as a social institution really got going at that time? Marshall responds, Social institutionalized violence came about partly as a result of a change in lifestyle. There's that word again, lifestyle. Not only with the advent of agriculture, but with an accompanying creation myth that evolved, we think, in Mesopotamia. In this creation myth, a virtuous male god crushed to smithereens an evil female goddess. The energy from this crushing of an evil force is what created our world. In effect, the switch from nomadic life to agriculture occurred in conjunction with the idea of good transcending evil, of good people ruling over evil people. The emergent ruling class put themselves in the role of being closer to God, and they controlled the land, which now was necessary to feed people. With all of this came a language, a way of judging who were the good people and who were the bad ones. This language glorified violence. It was used as a way to justify and control things by saying some people deserve to suffer for what they do. An underlying assumption of this myth is that it is human nature to behave in evil ways. That's not true. But to get people to believe it, our society educates people in a way that disconnects them from life. I really do think we've been educated to be as obedient as dogs, and I don't see that as serving life. And that's the end of the excerpt. What I propose is that the world would be better served by a humble human inquiry into what serves life. Not what serves me or you or what serves humans, but what serves life. For the simple reason that human life is entirely dependent on the health of non-human life. And it's my belief that what serves human life is for us humans to be orienting ourselves ongoingly towards this question. In the words of writer-activist farmer Wendell Berry, we must change our lives so that it will be possible to live by the contrary assumption that what is good for the world will be good for us. And that requires that we make the effort to know the world and to learn what is good for it. We must learn to cooperate in its processes and to yield to its limits. But even more important, we must learn to acknowledge that the creation is full of mystery. We will never entirely understand it. We must abandon arrogance and stand in awe. We must recover the sense of the majesty of creation and the ability to be worshipful in its presence. For I do not doubt that it is only on the condition of humility and reverence before the world that our species will be able to remain in it. So what is NVC then? Rather than promote a description of what it is or isn't, I'd prefer 
in this moment to articulate how I have over the years incorporated NVC into my own life and practice. For me, both the linguistic attributes of the NVC process and the overarching understanding that being in service to life itself is central to the maintenance of a healthy life. These two things, along with a continuous inquiry into how the natural world lives and dies and how humans show up as either healthy or unhealthy contributors to the sacred web of life, this is what constitutes my approach and understanding of NVC. The truth is, if we are to live in alignment with life and its very real limits, it requires that we be willing to learn and know those limits and not resent them, but honor them. I return to the question, how do we know what we need? If you ask a child in a candy shop or an addict who is desperately looking for their next hit, the answer will always be wrong because their choices will only further the separation from healthy living. We can't know what we need until we recognize ourselves to be embedded in a living world and that to tend to that most important relationship, taking our rightful place of belonging within that sacred web is how we ensure our needs and the needs of life are mutually met. Thank you for tuning into NBC Life. For future episodes, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. For free resources or to book a private session with me, head over to rochellelam.com. Until the next time, stay sane, grateful, and generous. Thank you.